Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. You have a band, good or bad. It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls. She's out with a new punk-inspired solo record. Plus, we'll review the latest comeback effort from Britney Spears and the new pseudonymous disc from Paul McCartney. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is T.I. with Live Your Life, the number one single in America these days, and uh, a lot of those sales, Jim, are coming from digital downloads. In fact, T.I.'s record company, the Atlantic Records label, the home of classic artists such as Ray Charles, John Coltrane, Led Zeppelin, etc., has announced a major landmark in major label history. It says it is now accumulating more than 50% of its revenue from digital sales. That means things like ringtones and downloads. So it's a landmark day for the major labels. The bad news is, even though digital sales are constituting a larger slice of the pie in terms of revenue, the pie is getting a lot smaller. Yeah. Consider that in the immediate years before the digital download onslaught began, the major labels were accumulating $15 billion in revenue. They were the biggest entertainment industry in the world. Right now, those sales are plunging towards the $10 billion level. I wasn't that great at math, but that's about one-third of their sales in the last five, six, seven years, which is a huge drop-off. And predictions are that those sales figures will drop below $10 billion in the next couple of years. So the pie is getting smaller. The revenue stream is getting smaller. Even though digital download sales are increasing, I think the upshot of this, Jim, is that they're not increasing fast enough to uh, save the sinking ship that is the major labels. They're going to have to, those executives are going to have to sell some of those Learjets. It's so sad. peppers are an interesting breed. An original taste is what we need. Ask any pepper and a say. Only Dr. Pepper tastes that way. I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. We're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. We're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be? Greg, remember that jingle from the 70s? Can't forget it. Lodged in my brain forever, Jim. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to give too much credit to the soft drink in question, but this is a great story. They're at war with Guns N' Roses. If you recall, 
hopping on the back of the Chinese democracy uh, waiting game. We were waiting for this album for 17 years, for Axl Rose to put out this new record ever since Guns N' Roses did his last record of original material 17 years ago. Somebody at the the corporation that runs Dr. Pepper was obviously a Guns N' Roses fan, and they thought this record would never come out. They said, if it actually comes out in 2008, we're going to buy everybody in America a Dr. Pepper, <laughs> okay? You know, why they decided to hitch their, their wagon promotionally to Guns N' Roses, I don't know. But the record actually came out. So the Sunday it was released... Dr. Pepper opened up a website, and you could log on and get a coupon for a free can of soda. There were so many hits that it crashed. (laughs) They extended it till Monday, so now you had two days to get your coupon for a free can of soda. This isn't enough for Guns N' Roses. Remember, Axl Rose is one of the most litigious men in rock history. They are now threatening Guns N' Roses Incorporated to sue Dr. Pepper for having (laughs) taken advantage of all those fans. They did not buy everybody in America a pepper, and this is an outrage, according to, to Guns N' Roses. Frankly, I think Axl has better things to worry about. Long-awaited record, what are the numbers? Only 261,000 copies of Chinese Democracy sold in week one. That may sound like a lot, but let's put it in perspective. Last week, Beyonce sold 482,000 copies of her record in the first week. This week, the number one record in America is Kanye West with 450,000 copies of a very dark, personal, very un-pop, un-Kanye-sounding record. Mm -hmm. Guns N' Roses is sitting at number two. You know, what happened here? It was only available at Best Buy. That worked wonders for the Eagles when they only sold their record at Walmart. And and, uh, ACDC as well. And ACDC. But you can go to Walmart for a lot more things. You know, you buy some laundry detergent, you buy some shotgun shells, you buy the new ACDC or Eagles record. Best Buy is a special trip. you got to go to Best Buy to buy this record. Did that backfire on them? Was it the fact that it was a mediocre record? You know, you and I both gave it burn it. There were some things we liked. There was a lot more we disliked. Or did people just forget over... Over the course of a decade and a half, who the heck Axl Rose was? Another man done gone. Another man done gone. Another man done gone from the car of farm. That is Odetta Gordon, better known as the uh, blues singer Odetta, who died a few days ago at the age of 77 with a song called Another Man Done Gone. Very influential record, Jim, that not only you and I have heard over our lifetimes, but uh, one young Bob Dylan heard Mm -hmm. and uh, influenced his early career. Odetta came out with that record in 1956 when she was still in her 20s. It's called Sings Ballads and Blues. She was championed by Pete Seeger and Harry Belafonte, the folk patriarchs of of America at the time. Odetta grew up in California. It was a classically trained singer and pianist. You can hear it in that full-bodied voice she had. Moved over to folk singing and uh, revolutionized the genre. A young singer playing these old country, blues, gospel, spiritual songs and advancing them for a new generation. And people like Bob Dylan and the Birds were greatly influenced by her music. Her 1956 album, Sings Ballads and Blues, remains a classic, one of the bedrock cornerstones of the modern folk movement. And here's another track from it, Odetta doing Jack of Diamonds on Sound Opinions. Jack of Diamonds a hard card to play Shadow Diamond is a hard 
Turtle Diamond is a con, said a mini poor man to his grave. Jack of Diamond is a hard card to play. Put your jack on the queen, it'll Turn your money green Jack of Diamond Is a hard card to play Put your jack on the queen And we'll turn your money green Jack That is Odetta with Jack of Diamonds on Sound Opinions. Odetta is dead at the age of 77. a little bit of a song called Blame is a Killer from the new album Didn't It Feel Kinder by Amy Ray. Greg, you know, Georgia-born and bred Amy Ray is uh, probably always going to be best known as half of the Indigo Girls along with her partner Emily Saliers. They've been on the scene since the 80s. They remain a vital and vibrant acoustic guitar protest song singing force. Always inspiring to see the Indigo Girls. But Amy has this other side of her career. Part of it's business related. She founded this label called Damon Records that is a huge supporter of the underground pop and folk and rock scene in the South. They do great work and she's you know very hands-on in keeping that label going. And then she has this solo career that she started in 2001 with a fine album called Stag. A few years later, followed it up with uh, an album called Prom, and now has this third studio release, Didn't It Feel Kinder? When she goes out and tours, uh, it's different than the Indigo Girls. I mean, obviously, they travel light, but they're still a big band. When she goes out, she's sleeping on floors. She's driving in a van. She's touring with members of the Butchies, an underground punk rock band. She's really doing it old-school punk rock at age 40-something. Yeah, she's had an extraordinary turnaround the last few years, Jim. I think uh, people who thought they knew what the Indigo Girls were all about and what Amy Ray was all about were in for a real shock when she started making solo records. She's one of the most thoughtful people in the music business, and uh, we had a great opportunity to hear some of her new music as well as talk to her about the state of the music industry when she stopped into the studio recently. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks. Thanks for having us. The capsule history, 27, 28 years going on with the Indigo Girls, of course, how many people know you. You are here in your solo incarnation, the third studio solo album of your career, Uh, Didn't It Feel Kinder, four solo albums if we count that live disc, right? Yeah, yeah. All of them 
uh, radically different, not only from the music of the Indigo Girls, but from each other. Mm-hmm. It, it really seems like um, on these solo projects, you just decide to go far and wide and, and, and indulge your musical tastes uh, wherever they'll take you. Yeah, it's kind of like the place to get my yayas out in a way. <laughs> Definitely. Are they, so they are as much fun uh, in the making as they are in, in listening to them. Yeah, I mean, I have a great time making them, and I'm, I think I'm a diehard collaborator, so it's really just my, my way of getting to collaborate with with other folks that are in my community and people from more from the punk and kind of underground world that that my heart's in, you know, from having an indie label for a lot of years and just knowing a lot of people through that. And it's just my way of, you know, listening to that other half of myself that's not an indigo girl. Hmm. You know, you got to it relatively late. I mean, talk about a late bloomer. I mean, in terms of making solo records, it was you and Emily basically since the 80s. And then in 2001, you started making solo records. And as I recall, when we were when we were discussing that first record, I think there was a, maybe I've got this story wrong, but it seemed like that Lucy Stoner song was sort of a breaking <laughs> point in terms of, okay, I'm not making Indigo Girls music anymore. I'm doing something that needs to be separate from that. You're right, Craig. So when it's DJ Flow and the morning show, I give you 100 reasons to just say no. I remember I was in a studio with Emily and I ran upstairs with my guitar and my manager was there and I was like, I've got this new song, I really want you to hear it. And it was based on a story Emily told me about a morning radio interview she had done when people were just being, you know, really inane and kind of insipid and and extremely irreverent to the point of misogyny, I guess. So she told me this story and um, and so I I wrote this song kind of about that and um, I played it for her and she was like, I don't know if... I don't know if we should do that one. (laughs) (laughs) It was reserved as a solo moment for me, for sure. So that answers that question, how an Amy Ray song uh, is not considered for the Indigo Girls is when Emily vetoes it. (laughs) And when she vetoes it. No, at first it was, but I don't, you know, she probably wouldn't veto that now. That was like Mm. a place she was in, but it was mostly just, I wanted to, I had an indie label since 89 and I wanted to play with all these different bands and I had met the Butchies and they had played with Indigos a little bit and I really wanted to create with them and, they kind of gave me the kick in the butt to do that, and they're with me now too. So yeah, yeah. Well, let, let, let's talk about this band. It's uh, Melissa York's on drums, right? Uh-huh. Kaya Wilson on guitar. We have Jim Anton on bass and Julie Wolf on, on keyboards and vocals. Working with so many people on these different solo projects, how did this band come together? And does it does it have a name? Should we don't have a that. name yet. Yeah, no name. This is the tour of compliments. So maybe Amy <laughs> ran the complimenters. Um, it's kind of like a volunteer group, you know, of who. Who can go out for and sit in a van and be stinky for? Well, and literally, I saw the van with the U-Haul trailer behind parked in front, <laughs> which the Butchies are probably used to, but but Indigo Girls probably travel a little better, right? Yeah, I mean it's coming full circle. <laughs> I'm thinking about buying a van, you know what I mean? <laughs> Not many people think it's fun to drive for eight hours a day in a van, but that's what you do for your your busman's holidays. I think it's fun to a certain point. I mean, I think it's fun because I don't have to do it. I mean, my friends that tour like this are like, you're crazy to be enjoying that. But I actually prefer vans because you can roll the windows down. You know, that's my take on it. Right, so, right. A little yeah. fresh air. Well, before we continue the conversation, let's have a song, Amy. What are we, what are we going to hear? Well, speaking of vans, I wrote a song about the tour bus. It's called Bus Bus. So let's do that one.
Well, it's a run away, run away, run away, babe, run away with you, baby. That is Amy Ray's new song, Bus, Bus, live on Sound Opinions. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more of Amy Ray and her band. And later on, we'll review the new album from Britney Spears, as well as Paul McCartney's side project, The Fireman. We head to the hot sun and it's
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our conversation with the indigo girl, Amy Ray. She's got a new solo album out called Didn't It Feel Kinder, and it came out on her own label, Damon Records. She formed that indie in 1989, but she's also had plenty of experience working with a major, given her experience with the Indigo Girls. So she's been able to see it from both sides. And I asked her for her perspective as a businesswoman, how the music industry has changed. I I don't know. I mean, part of my perspective is that I'm not sure how useful labels are to a certain level of musician. I think, like, my label's pretty small, and so... I'm looking at whether we actually are doing anything for anybody that they can't do for themselves. Because I think now that there's so much ability to enter, you know, through the internet and to get your music out there and to distribute and sort of self-promote in a way that's that's community-based, you know, a small label sometimes can get in the way. I'm just being completely objective. But then there's another level where an artist can, has kind of done it for themselves and created an infrastructure and they need that extra structure and i'm just looking at where the sweet spot is you know mm-hmm. i think majors are pretty useless right now unless you're <laughs> unless you're very image oriented you're doing you know tons of endorsements and commercial sort of image building things if that's what you want then you probably need a major label but mm-hmm. but that's how i feel i mean i think it's a revolution a, t- a time of revolution and i just think it's it's people are very demoralized but i feel excited about it in some level because even though it's hard i feel like it it has to implode a little bit before it's going to get better for all of us and it means, you know, maybe lower crowds and lower record sales for a while and things like that. But I think there's a way to rise above it and just keep playing music. Mm. Well, that's a that's a great point. And, uh, you know, it leads me to my next question. You know, the Indigo Girls were at a certain level of success when, when the industry was actually selling records. Um, <laughs> you guys were selling records pretty well, too. And you sort of rode out a lot of waves up and down in terms of popularity and in terms of how much attention your label is paying to you. A lot of artists and bands, I think, would get discouraged when they hit a certain level and it's not there anymore for them right. uh, because the label's not paying attention to them, the, the tides turn. How were you able to sort of ride through all those different variations? Well, I think there was a point where we noticed the label wasn't, when we were on Epic, where they weren't paying attention. and It was like we were meeting with the president of the label and, and we still had a few records left to do. And he said to us across the table, well, girls, we had a good run together. <laughs> and me and Emily looked at each other and we were just like both going, yeah. it's over. And he didn't drop us, but we knew they weren't going to do anything to help us anymore. Yeah. It, it was his way of saying that. And he was a friend too, you know, which felt mm-hmm. bad. But we were pretty bitter for about a year and then we just got over it. Because mm-hmm. when you have a partner, it really helps. And when you have a man, we've been with the same manager since we were 23, same booking agent the whole time. So it's like a family and you just do it, you know. And, and at at some point, you, you appreciate the fact they're not paying attention to you because it means you can do whatever you want to do and <laughs> get away with it and still have the resources. And then we got, we signed to Hollywood for a record and we just got dropped from that. So now we're totally indie. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good, and our audience is so cool. We have a core fan base that just stays with us and, their kids come, and we've been lucky. We're just lucky. I don't mm-hmm. know you know, how, how else to put it. Does the trauma help the art, the songwriting? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that, that kind of trauma is so little compared to the world trauma yeah. that I yeah. don't even, you know. It's, just, it's, it's more of a reflection of, of a societal situation to me than something that's a personal affront sometimes where I'm just like, this is a bummer that society is like this, that in, in the record society in the U.S., you know, the recording business yeah. where... It's so down to demographics and queerness and straightness and color. And, you know, if you're black, you can't play rock. And if you're this, you can't do that. And I just, you know, it gets old. And mm-hmm. that's that's a bummer when I see that. But I don't, 
I tr- you know, I take it as a personal affront, and then I try to just get past it. Mm-hmm. Is it easier to be more outs- I mean, maybe not easier, but it seems like there's a level of outspokenness on this record. And uh, it seems to me, in, in a lot of ways, you're addressing the outside world in, in very direct terms. Do you feel it more necessary now to, to say these sort of things, or, or maybe feel, in a, feel like it's more imperative as an artist to be saying these things now than maybe you did a decade ago or 20 years ago when you were starting out? I don't know if I think about it that directly. I think this one thing the solo thing afforded me was sort of a singular voice. And not that Emily would, you know, she's always with me. I mean, we, we feel the duality and we, have, we share the same values and stuff. But I think for some reason I tap into another place that's more outspoken in some ways. And it, it's not out of fear. It's just out of I don't have the peripheral vision all the time of seeing her beside me. And, and I think, you know, one thing Emily has been able to do with us that's really remarkable is that she... She's written a lot of political songs that are really to the point and and good, and that's hard songwriting to do. Mm-hmm. And for me, the context of rock is easier for me to do that in sometimes with without the context of duality and compromise and harmony and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you can hide behind the electric guitar, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to be it's angrier heavier. with it's an electric. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, why don't you play another song for us, Amy, and tell us, tell us where this one's coming from. This one, um, we're going to do a song called Put It Out for Good. This one is about that sort of sense of rebellion. And I actually wrote this in tribute to a, a second cousin of mine that died and when she was 16, and she was part of a kind of a ragtag goth punk group of people. <laughs> and <laughs> the high school kids put together a rock show for her as a memorial, and me and Emily played, and a bunch of punk bands played. And I just kind of wrote this after that, after that experience. with a new desire. 
<laughs> Amy Ray. Good stuff. Every once in a while, I do wish we were on video, because to see Amy jumping up and down there, <laughs> rocking out. Amy Ray and the band that can't commit to a name on Sound Opinions. <laughs> Non-committers. The Jim and Gay Baby studio. <laughs> you, uh... I think I read somewhere recently where you're talking about you uh, will sit at home on those rare days when you are actually at home as opposed to in a tour bus or a, a van, and you like to write. You like to uh, sit down and, and, and write songs. I mean, I do it, like it. And it, it <laughs> seems like you're and you're talking about hours a day where you're sitting and, and, and thinking about songs and writing songs. And how will you do that? Will you will you sit there and write out lyrics, or you're, you you got your guitar in hand and recording stuff into a tape deck, or yeah. how does that work? Well, I, I just, I keep a lyric journal. Um, I'm not writing a lot right now because I just, we just finished an Indigo record too, so I'm just kind of like, rah. Yeah. But I keep a lyric journal, and then when I'm at home, and when I'm on the road too, I try to dedicate like four or five days a week, and write two or three hours a day, you know, at least. And I take a little recorder, and I just take my lyric book, and I open it up, and I either write, or I start singing to the things that I've written. Mm-hmm. Or I just start playing, and I just sort of do it, and I record everything I do, and then I go through the tapes and pick stuff out that appeals to me, and I start marking everything, and I mark the tape and the book and match things up. It's like doing a crossword puzzle. Right. I just really, like, I I had some conversations like eight years ago, I guess, with Steve Earle and a couple other writers about writing, and I read this book by Stephen King called On Writing, and they just influenced me to actually have a discipline. (laughs) I used to just drink beer and sit on the porch and think the muse would hit me you know and it didn't it didn't work for me that way <laughs> i think a lot of people have this mythology that that's the way it's done it's well, I think just it like done a, a song just appears that you know well, out of nowhere some, i think some folks write like that probably rare folks you know yeah. who are like you know i don't know elliot smith or something you know writers that are rare in our time but for mm-hmm. me i have to have a discipline in order to get it done and sometimes i like to just play really loud electric guitar and just sound as bad as i want to sound and yell and scream well speaking of that what was the reaction when, when, when Stag came out. I'm, I'm always curious about how the fans received that record. Uh, that record for, was received generally pretty good, but I think Indigo fans have, you know, there was a certain curiosity that happened for a little while, but I think the the part of the Indigo Girl fan base that doesn't like this kind of music definitely drifted off. Mm-hmm. So now the audience is pretty small, and the curiosity's worn off. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm just trying to find another audience, you know, like people that, want to hear this you know and and it's hard to do that but it you know we just have fun playing so now you're down to the hardcore yeah you're going to give us one more yeah um we're going to hear a song called laramie um let's start it at all i think
I know you're thinking like a hurricane, Neil Young. There, right I, at the end I, of that. You I are. can't help it. I, he's, he's. I've been listening to Neil Young since I was like one or something. Yeah, why use a hundred <laughs> notes when four will do? Why use a hundred when I only yes. know four? Excellent. <laughs> Great stuff. Amy Ray, Kaya Wilson, Julie Wolf, Jim Anton, Melissa York. Thank you all for being here. Oh, thanks, guys. Thank Beautiful. You. 
comment about our interview with Amy Ray or anything we say on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Greg and I will review the new albums from Britney Spears and Paul McCartney's alter ego, The Fireman. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Womanizer from the sixth album by Britney Spears, Circus. Greg, you and I often say, as one of the uh, key cornerstones of this show, we <laughs> listen to Britney Spears, so you don't have to. You know, it's going to be inescapable. This is coming at us with a wave of hype. We're going to tell you everything you need to know about this effort by Britney Spears. And then, you know, you don't have to think about her again, Okay. This is a pop culture phenomenon. It is inescapable. And young Miss Spears, who just turned 27, has a list of problems twice as long as any other messed up person in, in, the, in, the, in the spotlight right now. And, Except and you, maybe Amy, Amy Winehouse. No, she's worse. You know, no, no. Two divorces, lost custody of her two children in the last 13 months, two involuntary trips to the psychiatric ward, and all those problems with paparazzi and all the other public embarrassments her underwear showing, okay? You know, the poor girl is really messed up. Right now, there's a Rolling Stone cover story on the racks that makes unusually hard-hitting for a Rolling Stone profile. Usually the they're all about the celebrity. They make the point that at 27, Britney now has fewer legal rights than she had when she was a member of the Mickey Mouse Club wow. at the start of her career. Her father has legal custody over her and is making all of her decisions. Her phone calls are monitored. She has a bodyguard 24-7 who actually is there not to protect her but to watch and make sure she doesn't mess up. She's not allowed to drive. She is this woman that they basically keep in a road case and they take out <laughs> and they put out there to promote yeah. her new product. So what do you do with that, you know, trying to revive this train wreck of a career when, you know, there was that famous meltdown at the MTV Video Music Awards a couple of years ago. You put her out there. You make fun of her own problems or play them lightly. You know, you call the album Circus and uh, you use what's always been her most potent tool, sex. Now you say, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Didn't we just go through that? Indeed, we did. A mere 13 months ago <laughs> when her first big comeback album, the, the first one that she put out after four years out of the spotlight, Blackout, came out. 
It flopped. It was a mere 900,000 copies sold. That's considerable, but that's not Britney numbers. This is a woman who was selling five or six million copies of every album. Now we're having another attempt, and it seems to be much better orchestrated by BS Incorporated. You know, you have the giant launch uh, on her birthday with a authorized documentary autobiography that airs, uh, made by her record company, airs on MTV. She appears on Good Morning America. She's going out on tour early in the new year. All of that is extraneous uh, Us Magazine stuff, Greg, as far as we're concerned. What does the music sound like? That's what we care about. Let's listen to a track, and uh, as always on Sound Opinions, we'll come back after that and give our opinions. Rate this on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is a song called Blur from Britney Spears' sixth album, Circus on Sound Opinions. That is Britney Spears with a song called Blur from her sixth album, Circus. Uh, Jim, given the scenario you just described, that is one of the most disturbing pop songs I think I have ever heard. I mean, listen to what she's saying in that song. Who are you? What did we do? Hope I didn't, but I think I might have. Maybe I shouldn't have given in, but I just couldn't fight. What I think is being described there, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a drug or alcohol-fueled night on the town Mm -hmm. ending in a date rape where she passes out and doesn't remember any of the details. I think that's it. Yeah. Pretty disturbing (laughs) song. You know, she's entering the uh, Elvis Vegas years. I mean, Mm -hmm. she literally is that size of a personality. Elvis became a stuntman when he went to Vegas in, in the 70s, and it was almost like a commentary on being Elvis when you saw that Elvis stage show. And I think this album... Circus is the same kind of thing. It's a pop diva making a pop album with the best producers money can buy, and it's also a commentary on being a pop diva. In the past, we'd had this separation between church and state with Britney Spears. Those albums weren't personal at all. They were pop trinkets meant to be disposed, meant to be sold, and then forgotten about. Now we have an album where she is addressing what seems to be an incredibly tumultuous life more directly, even though she barely wrote any of these songs. They were written for her. Yeah, and she barely sings any of them. I mean, you know, the, the computer pitch tuner, auto 
auto-tune vocoder robot, you yeah. know, is singing. How much she's actually involved in this is debatable. The other two really disturbing songs besides Blur are If You Seek Amy, where that dirty old man, superstar Swedish producer Max Martin comes yeah. in. You have to say that title a few times fast. Yeah. It's, it's the crassest come on in a career that's been marked by them. And then there's that song Mmm Poppy, which kind of apes two live crews, Me So Horny. Yeah. And she's singing about her dad. Really disturbing stuff. The rest of it, I'm kind of guilty for liking. Aside from two really treacly ballads, this is the finest produced Britney Spears album in in the last uh, three or four, I think. And there are definite moments of pop pleasure. But to enjoy them, you have to suspend any concern at all for the human being who who, who (laughs) is Britney Spears, if she even still exists. Because this is clearly a woman who's like on the fast road to auto-destruction. Yeah, it is that double-edged sword. Uh, The work that uh, people like Max Martin and Bloodshine Avant and Danger and Guy Sigsworth do on this record... It is a first-rate pop album on that level. But you're right, there's this disturbing undertow. And as a cultural observer, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm also incredibly troubled by it. It is a burn-it record. I think everybody needs to hear a piece of this and get a sense of what this huge celebrity is going through and and, and shake your head and go, my God, there, but for the grace of God, go the rest of us. Yeah, but burn it, but be aware that you're contributing to this woman's destruction. Wow. Believe it or not, that's uh, Paul McCartney under his pseudonym, The Fireman. It's a song called Nothing Too Much, Just Out of Sight. It's from the third Fireman album. It's called Electric Arguments. A collaboration between uh, McCartney, who you may recall is the bass player in a certain band <laughs> called The Beatles. <laughs> and also Wings. And also Wings. Let's not forget Wings. And a, a long-running solo career since the early 70s. Occasionally has been doing these collaborative albums with youth. Best known as a producer for uh, U2 and The Verb. Also a bass player in Killing Joke and also a member of the electro-ambient project The Orb. So they go into the studio every few years and, and make these weird soundscapey albums, or at least that's what they were doing in the 90s. There were a couple of Fireman albums released in 93 and again in 98, which were intentionally anonymous projects by these two collaborators. Instrumental music, no songs to speak of, no vocals to speak of, no sense of song craft per se. Now they've re-entered the studio and uh, they decide, hey, let's do some real songs this time. Let's put some vocals on them. So we've got a completely new sound and feel for the Firemen on this third album that they put out together. And uh, it primarily comes from McCartney singing these vocals. The soundscapey production has been mixed with some traditional rock instruments. You hear a lot of heavy guitar, a lot of drumming. McCartney plays most of the instruments. Youth does most of the soundscapey electronic after effects. And uh, the combination is what we're going to hear next. We're going to play a song from the new album, and then we're going to discuss it. Let's play a song called Sing the Changes on Sound Opinions from the Firemen.
That is Paul McCartney and Youth, a.k.a. The Fireman, with a song called Sing the Changes on Sound Opinions from their new album, Electric Arguments. You know, Greg, Sir Paul McCartney, despite being probably richer than any man in the history of popular music and having more awards than anybody could could have, right? You know, he must fill warehouses with them. It has always bothered him that his old mate, John Lennon, was perceived as the avant-garde one of the Beatles, while McCartney was the pop one. Right. Since the 60s, he's been arguing, you know, I was the bachelor running around London doing tape loops, doing drugs, doing weird sonic experiments. John was out living in the burbs with his first wife wife, okay? Nevertheless, you know, John gave us Tomorrow Never Knows, and Paul McCartney gives us lots of songs about Mom and Lady Madonna and so on. Now, having with much ado, put out Memory Almost Full last year on the Starbucks label, Hear Music, which is now defunct. <laughs> I think he was at a little bit of loss ends, so he wanted to make a Paul McCartney album, but he wanted to do it in the spirit of what he did with The Fireman. So everything was written, recorded, finished in one day. 13 tracks, each of them got one 24-hour period. Right. And that's kind of cool. He's been at his best when he's done that. A couple of years ago, 99 actually, uh, Run Devil Run, he just went to the studio with David Gilmore, a bunch of his pals, and they tore through these 50s rock songs that they loved. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was like punk rock. That's the part of this album I love. I love that song in the beginning where he's doing his Jack White. I hated the song we just played. <laughs> Him imitating Bono, not good. And then there's the last third of the album is some some fine psychedelic space rock. Okay, I'm down with that. He was one of the masters of it. Yeah. It's the same problem with all of his solo albums. They're wildly inconsistent. The guy has no good garbage detector anymore. Oh, I disagree. I think uh, this is one of the stronger McCartney records. Whether he's calling it The Fireman or Paul McCartney, it's a, it's basically a McCartney record. I think he does a terrific job on it. Uh, youth certainly helped. There's no doubt about it. The mixture of the melodies that McCartney is so known for with these psychedelic soundscapes is a pretty intriguing combination to me. And you remove a lot of that sentimentality, that cloying, puppy-eyed wistfulness that uh, McCartney sometimes brings to his more mainstream projects. I think that has been severely reduced on this, and I think that's a good thing. I don't really know what he's singing about. I think the words are almost secondary to the sound of this record. And I think it's a great sound. I do like the more song-oriented approach, and I think it's a terrific record. On the Sound Opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it. I think it's a buy it record. I think if it wasn't Paul McCartney, you wouldn't care, Greg. You know, there's better freak folk out there from from Fleet Foxes. There's better space rock, Lord knows, from a 100 different bands. It's a burn it record. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, uh, one of our favorite shows of the year. In fact, the show of the year as far as we're concerned. It is our top albums of 2008. We're going to lay it out, and the listeners are going to help us with some of their choices as well. Greg, we have some thank yous to say. Amy Ray and her band were recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia, who, contrary to popular belief, is not the guy who inspired Womanizer. That was Kevin Federline. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. messages. Hello, happy Thanksgiving, and Greg and Jim. What's going on? This is Dominic calling from Brooklyn. Um, first off, I think uh, as far as going to see the Eagles and you know, the Rolling Stones and paying exorbitant ticket prices that you guys have been covering, I think 
a great idea maybe for you guys could cover and like you've done with the Rock Doctors and to give some suggestions about other bands who are touring who are giving reasonable prices in that uh, they, they come from the same time they sound like I'm in, not going to rip you off. Maybe that would be a good idea for a show. Like, if you don't want to see the Eagles, you know, go see the Steve Miller Band. So uh, thanks a lot and uh, keep up the good work. Hi, my name's David Dodson from Louisville, Kentucky. Listening to your turkey shoot, very enjoyable program. I have to say, I thought you missed one. Uh, Kanye West's latest outing. It's amazing, I'm the reason. Everybody fired up this evening. I'm exhausted, barely breathing. Holding on to what I believe in. I mean, I couldn't have been a bigger Kanye West fan. His first outing blew me away. But where he got the idea to sing, or should I say caterwaul, his way through that album and use that awful Britney Spears voice modulator on every single track. I, I don't know what got in his head. I really don't. Anyway, thanks. Love the show. Hi, my name's Anna. I'm calling from Springfield, Illinois. About that show about the worst turkeys of the year. When you guys first trashed that My Morning Jacket album, I was really upset about that because I really love that Evil Urges song, and I still think that's a really good song. But after many attempts of trying to listen to other songs on that album, I have to agree that they're really bad. So uh, I have to admit that you're right on that one. If you could, please don't ever play any more segments of that highly suspicious song. Thanks very much. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Josh from New York, and I am calling very contrite and somewhat ashamed of myself after listening to your interview with um, Alejandro Escobedo because I feel like I should have known who he was before I heard that interview. I'm a huge, huge fan of Matthew Sweet, and um, I was—I would always listen to him and think to myself, "Oh, you know, there's got to be a missing link uh, between the 1970s singer-songwriter and Matthew Sweet, and it's Alejandro Escovedo. Um, he talked a lot about his influences, and now I know where Matthew Sweet and bands like Wilco get their influences from." Absolutely amazing. I can't wait to buy all of his albums. Up the good work. Thanks. Hi, my name is Bill from San Antonio, and I'm a big fan of the show, which I listen to by podcast. And I want to give a general appreciation of the program, in particular some of the little subtle things you do, like at the end of the show when you play these calls from listeners who play a different song by the same band if you're running a comment on a particular band. I do have two little pieces of constructive criticism for you guys. One is you could work a little harder on pronouncing names correctly. There's Garalnik versus Garalnik and all kinds of problems with names on the program. Perhaps you could assign an intern to check out the correct pronunciation and then fill you in uh, on that. Also, uh, I'd prefer that you not call the show a show about rock and roll if you're going to cover a lot of non-rock and roll genres particularly hip-hop. Maybe just call it a show about popular music instead. So it's a good, good work overall, though, Mr. Coates and Mr. Derogatus. 
Thanks. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.